You might have to be a little long in the tooth to recognize this, but Rhoda played for the offertory the song Till the Storm Passes By. I wondered if that was comment about the snowstorm, but um, it, uh, we'll see. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn for the last time to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to finish this chapter, and then we only have two more chapters in this book, so it'll only take us about two years. So... Um, 1 John chapter 3, we're going to look at the last paragraph of the chapter, but because we know that the Bible is best understood in context, we're actually going to start reading in verse 11. So I'm going to read from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. We're going to talk about just the last paragraph, but we'll start in verse 11. Context is so important. Uh, Let's do that. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Here's what the Apostle John writes. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who, uh, sorry, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how, verse 16, we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in Him, and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. Today we're going to talk about doubt, or actually more uh, accurately, we're going to talk about assurance. How do I know that I'm really a Christian? Uh, Was I sincere when I made a profession of faith? Have I really trusted Christ for my salvation? Does ongoing uh, failure to resist temptation mean I'm not really a Christian? Some of you are troubled by that. Some of you are troubled by questions like that. And and they, they point us in the direction of a very important issue, one that matters to us a lot. The reason assurance matters to us a lot as followers of Christ is because he himself commanded us to preach the gospel. We're supposed to tell people about what the Lord Jesus has done and and invite them to believe in him. It's our central task as followers of Jesus, and it matters that you believe that, and it matters that you have confidence that you believe that. Assurance is clearly an issue in the text. Verse 19, it starts, this is how we know we belong to the truth. Clearly, that's an important issue. 
It's actually not just an issue for this paragraph that we're going to look at. It's an issue for the whole book of John. In fact, look with me over for just a second at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Look what he says. Some people think that verse 13 is kind of the, the key verse or the theme verse. John, 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. The These things would be the book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to people he believes are genuine followers of Jesus. You're the ones who believe. He's writing to them, and yet they don't have assurance. They apparently need help to know this. Uh, It's possible to be a genuine follower of Jesus, but still have doubts. Uh, Back in in verse 19 of chapter 3, he describes it this way, that sometimes your hearts can condemn you, or maybe we should translate that, um, conscience. Your conscience might not be at rest. It might need persuading. It might need even convincing. And that's a terrible feeling. David Noel is a pastor in Ohio. He once told a story about a time he was in his uh, breakfast table in the morning and his phone rang. So he answered the phone. He said, hello, and... uh, um, Uh, David Knoll, the person said, yeah, this is David Knoll. She said, this is your neighbor, Mrs. Waldron. This ever happened to you? He thought to himself, Mrs. Waldron. Who is that? He said, who is it? She said, this is Mrs. Waldron, your neighbor. And he said, I was too embarrassed at this point in time. I couldn't place this woman, but I decided to just play along like I knew who she was. What can I do for you today, Mrs. Waldron? She said, well, I'm calling to tell you that there's a fire out in back of your house by the fence near the gas tanks. So he immediately, funny, he said, I don't have a fence and I don't have gas tanks in the backyard. But I ran to the backyard and looked out. Said, so that there was nothing there. and, And he said, Ma'am, I I think you have the wrong David Knoll. She said, isn't this David Knoll who lives on Avery Street? He said, no, no. She said, well, I'm sorry to bother you. He said, no problem, and hung up the phone. He said, he wrote this, I hung up the phone with a smile and with one more glance at the backyard. A few minutes later, as I was sitting at the table, I found myself looking out in the backyard again. The stakes were too high to let a little embarrassment or confusion keep me from making sure. This is funny. He knows there's no fire in the backyard. He's seen it. He doesn't have a fence in his backyard. He doesn't have gas tanks. He doesn't live on the right street. It's not even his neighbor. And still he's peeking out. Is there a fire? Is there a fire? Have you ever done anything like that? It's a terrible feeling to know the truths in the Bible about Jesus, but always be looking in your heart. Do I really believe this? Do I really believe this? To that uncertainty, you can add the fact that the Bible tells us that it's possible to think you're a Christian and not actually be one. So 1 John 5, you can be a Christian and have doubts about that. In in, uh, Matthew 7, Jesus was speaking, it's possible to think you're a Christian and not be one. Look what Matthew 7.21 says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. We better be careful about this. We're not the first Christians to wonder about this. So uh, about the time of the Protestant Reformation, most Roman Catholics on the street believed that to have assurance was presumptuous. It It was 
proud, it was arrogant to say that you uh, know that you were going to heaven when you died because, well, that may be true today, but tomorrow you could commit a mortal sin or you could die without priestly absolution. You can't possibly have assurance. And Martin Luther came along and said, absolutely, you can. He and John Calvin took this issue on. We're going to talk about what they said a little bit later. <clears throat> they said, uh, our confidence is based in the work of Christ and not any declaration from any human being, priest or not. We'll come back to that. Soon after we moved to Lancaster, I read a book about the Amish. Had to learn about these strange creatures. One of the things that this book said about this community was, again, you can't have assurance in this community because it's arrogant to say that you know that you have eternal life. It's a sign of pride to say that. Now, in the time that we have this morning, I want to accomplish two things. One, uh, first I want to talk about assurance from a broad perspective. This is not the last time we're going to talk about this issue based on this book. We'll come back to it. But we're going to devote some time today to it, a lot of time actually. Secondly, I want to unfold this text. It's actually my main assignment is to look at these verses in the text. Uh, It's a little tricky, this passage is. Most translations smooth it out and they do it quite well. But there's some peculiarities there as John goes back and forth between our assurance and the work of God. It's just a little, a little tricky text. I want to do both of those things. I want to walk through this text and I want to talk about assurance. Um, let's try to do them both well, right? So we're going to proceed under two parallel different headings. One's about doubt and one's about assurance. First thing we're going to talk about is you need to realize that there are different kinds of doubt. There are different kinds of doubt, That's important to remember because the Bible answers those doubts differently, and we should too. On the one hand, we'll we'll talk about one kind of doubt. On the one hand, there are those who have doubts about the claims that we make as Christians, the, the claims of Christianity, the things that we say about the Lord Jesus that we say are historically factual things. And there are people who doubt that. Let's just remember, the Lord Jesus is the center of our faith. We believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man. He's the second person of the Trinity, uh, born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin about the year that our calendars changed from B.C. to A.D. Of course, they didn't do it that then. Uh, that happened afterwards. Um, maybe he was born a couple years before that, about, about that period of time. He lived in Nazareth. When he became an adult for three years, he went around preaching and healing people. He was charged by the Romans with treason. He was executed on the cross. In the plan of God, on the cross, he bore our sins. That is, he paid the penalty that we deserved, bearing the wrath of God for us. He died. He rose again. Three days later, he ascended into heaven. He's coming back. From heaven, he gives life and forgiveness to all who trust in him, all who turn to him. It's a summary of the claims we make, and we believe those are rooted in history. They actually happened in the days of Caesar Augustus. These things happened. But not everyone believes that. If you're inclined to doubt those facts, you can find help and encouragement in your doubts in a lot of different places. This week I read read a Twitter exchange between a British scholar named Peter Williams and someone from the Richard Dawkins Foundation. It wasn't Richard Dawkins himself, I'm I'm pretty sure. Uh, It was one of his staffers, his foundation. And the person who was tweeting Richard Dawkins' foundation went so far as to argue that Jesus of Nazareth didn't actually exist as a historical person. 
Uh, that's an unusual view. There's not a lot of people who, who deny that he actually existed as a person. Now, I know I'm biased. I'm totally biased about this, but I think Peter Williams got the better part of the exchange. So um, he did something I have heard him do before. He took all of the arguments that people make against the existence of Jesus, and he applied them to the emperor, Roman emperor Tiberius. So if, if these arguments prove that Jesus didn't exist, do you know that they also prove that the Roman emperor Tiberius doesn't exist either? No one doubts that Tiberius actually existed. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to show these arguments are not any good. They're not worth trusting in. They're not reliable as, as far as understanding what happened in history. Peter Williams, he just released a book called Can We Trust the Gospels? You should read it because it might help with some of the, the doubts about the factual claims that Christians make. That's just one kind of doubt. Sometimes there are people who doubt whether or not um, Jesus' death actually applies to them personally. It's not about the claims of Christianity, but the application of Christianity to themselves. Does this really apply to me? Jesus died on the cross for sins, sure, but did he die for my sins? Can it be true that Jesus paid for my sins, that I really can be forgiven? I mean, do you know all the things that I have done wrong? Ever since the time I even heard about Jesus, the good news, it doesn't seem possible that I could be forgiven, that his death would be for me. This actually is... um, One of the things that John takes up at the beginning of the book, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My dear children, I write you this so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The foundation of all of our assurance, we look to Jesus. It's what Martin Luther emphasized. This is what he said over and over again. Our, the foundation of our assurance is the work of the Lord Jesus, that he is the one who is the sacrifice for our sins. Our assurance is bound up in what he did and not in our performance. Uh, We'll come back to that in, in a few minutes. There's a third type of doubt I want to talk about. There's probably more types of doubt than this, but there's a third type. This is, this is the end of my list. There are some who doubt the claims of Christianity. There are some who doubt the application of Christianity. And there are some who doubt based on their own experiences of Christianity, their own experiences of following Jesus. There's not enough evidence in my life. I don't see it in my life to have any sort of confidence that my faith is real. They say things like, you know, I read the Bible and my experience doesn't match what the Bible says. We sang that hymn a few minutes ago, a blessed assurance, joy, joy all the time, praising my Savior all the day long. I have this great joy. Uh, it's a foretaste of glory. How if Jesus is really my Savior and I really have the Spirit living me, can my life be such a mess? Well, how can there really be so much sin? Why do I say, if... if, if I really am a Christian. Why am I still addicted to porn or alcohol? Why do I spend so much time on Facebook and Snapchat? In fact, I can't stop and I don't really want to read my Bible. How can that be a sign of a real Christian? How come I can, you have to be of a certain age, like my age, to do this. How can I remember all the lyrics to the theme song of the Brady Bunch television show? but I can't remember any verses in the Bible at all. 
How can that possibly, how can I be a Christian if that's true of me? Why am I so depressed? If I was a real Christian, I shouldn't be this depressed. The joy of the Lord is not really my strength, is it? Real Christians shouldn't have this many doubts, right? If I was a real Christian, I wouldn't have doubts like this. There's different kinds of doubts. You should remember that. And, and, and added to these doubts here is observation number two. So there's different kinds of doubts. Observation number two, the Bible provides different kinds of assurance. The Bible provides different kinds of assurance. Do you ever notice when you read the Gospels how Jesus dealt with people so differently? Sometimes if, you, if you're not paying careful attention... It might seem to, that Jesus gives to people contradictory advice. He's not contradicting himself. He's meeting the needs that people have, the different needs that people have. So one time there was a guy who came to him, and Jesus said, you know what, if you want to follow me, you need to sell everything you have and come after me. There was another guy that, that was with Jesus once. Jesus had healed him from um, uh, a disease, and, and, and the man said, I want to come and follow you. And Jesus said, no, don't come and follow me. You go home. What's Jesus doing there? Well, he's, he's helping people in different situations. It's funny. In Matthew chapter 6, he, <coughs> he told people, when it comes to praying, stop repeating yourself over and over and over again. Don't do that as if, as if your many words are going to convince God to answer you. And then he told his disciples one time that they ought to keep praying and not stop. Persevere. Keep asking God. Don't quit. What's he doing? Well, there's some people who think that you say a lot of words to God and he's bound to answer. And there's some people who think that prayer is just a flippant thing and they said it once and what's the deal? God should just answer me and give me whatever I want, right? Different advice for different needs. And the Bible provides different kinds of assurance. For example, those who doubt the facts... Uh, uh, the claims of Christianity, John says in 1 John chapter 1, I saw him with my own eyes. I touched him with my own hands. Uh, well, look what 1 John 1, 1 says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The Bible says to those who doubt the claims, the facts, no, this is eyewitness accounts. These are people who really saw Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is writing about the resurrection. He said, if some of you doubt the resurrection, Jesus appeared to 500 people once, and a lot of them are still alive. You can go talk to them about this. They saw him. Again, our friend Peter Williams says that the Gospels bear all the hallmarks of an eyewitness account, someone who knew what life in the first century Palestine was like. So the eyewitness accounts are here for those who doubt the facts. The Bible addresses that sort of doubt. Now, if you doubt the application of Christ's work to you, the Bible repeats over and over and over again that Christ's death is sufficient for all who believe. Everyone. This is the central foundation of our assurance. It's the heart of our assurance. It's Martin Luther's argument. It's John's argument too. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And our hope is in him, in him. I think that's what John's getting at a little bit in 1 John 3.20, our paragraph that we're looking at. It says, if our hearts condemn us, there'll be times... You could be a genuine follower of Jesus and your heart can say, "Uh uh-uh. In those instances, 
We know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. Our trust is in Him. In, in Him. Our assurance is in Him. D.A. Carson tells a story about two Israelite, peop- two Israelite men who get together on the day of Passover. Back in the Old Testament, do you remember the story? So as the tenth and final plague, God had said to the Egyptians, he said what was going to happen is that on one night, every firstborn son in Egypt was going to die. Egyptians, Israelites, everybody. From the palace of Pharaoh to the poorest slave shack, every firstborn son was going to die. But he told the Israelites, here's what to do. Here's what you should do. Take a, a lamb... A, a, a spotless lamb, slaughter it and paint the blood on the doorposts of your house. And if you are in that house, your firstborn son is there, he will be safe. I will see the blood and it will pass over your house. All right, that was the instructions. Well, imagine a conversation between two men, two uh, Israelite men. We'll call them Simon and Levi, right? That'll work. So Simon says to Levi, what do you think about this? going to happen tonight you ready Levi says yeah the, the blood's already on my doorpost how, how about you Simon says yeah it's there but this is really I mean these plagues have been terrible and I only have one son I have one son what what if I lose him aren't you aren't you worried Levi aren't you worried and Levi says no, I'm not I, I'm, I'm prepared the blood is there my family's going to be with me inside the house. I'm ready. God promised. I, I believe it. Did, didn't you paint your, your, your doorpost with blood? Simon says, yeah, I did. I did. But it's going to be a long night. Now, in the morning, in the morning, whose son is still alive? And the answer to the question is both of them. Both sons of Simon and Levi, because the promise is given to all those under the blood. The power is in the blood. It is not in your faith. It is the work of Jesus Christ that saves, not the measure of your faith. Our only hope is in him. Someday you're going to see me walk in the street of gold and you're going to say, Divinity, how did you make it in here? How did you get here? And I will say, I only made it here because of what Jesus did for me. If there's any other ground for me to be here other than what he did, I, I certainly don't deserve to be here. It's got to be him. It's got to be him and his work. He's my only hope. He's my only guarantee. I have no hope without him. Some of you, you have doubts, and this is easy to do. This is so easy to do. So I want to say this gently. You have doubts because you have started thinking that God accepts people because they try hard or because they're really sincere in their faith. But the only ground of our acceptance before God is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to repeat this song to you. We sing this. We didn't sing it this morning, but we sing it sometimes. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. You can build yourself a lot of frames, a lot of sweet things that you can trust in. I don't trust in those. I only trust in Jesus' name. There's a passage that parallels this this paragraph, I think, that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Look what it says. 
I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Now we could turn that upside down. My conscience is not clear, but that does not make me guilty. Right? It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. It is God who judges. It is God who, on the basis of his own son's blood, declares us fit for heaven. That's the ground of our assurance. Now, he brings this together a little bit more even at the end of verse 24. Look what it says. It says, and this is how we know that he lives in us. The last sentence This is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Our assurance is grounded in the promise of the Father, the work of the Son, and the presence of the Spirit. Now, I have to confess, I wish I knew more about what John was writing here. See, there's some followers of Jesus who say that the Spirit's work that he's talking about here is some miracle. You have to have some miracle in your life, and that's the evidence of the presence of the Spirit. That doesn't seem right. It seems to parallel what Paul wrote in Romans 8. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I wish I knew what that felt like. I wish I could describe that to you, what it feels like. The apostles never did. John actually, I think he comes close in chapter 4. We're going to get to chapter 4 next week, Lord willing. Um, But the Spirit is the one who enables us to believe Our faith itself in the Son, the Lord Jesus, is a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That you accept these truths at all is the work of the Spirit. Our assurance is rooted in the triune work of God. It's the foundation. In the work of God who is greater than you. Than your hounding conscience. Some of you need to hound your conscience back. Now, but there's more here in the text and in the Bible. To those doubting the facts, the Bible says, here's an eyewitness account. To those who are doubting the application of it, the Bible says over and over again, Jesus Christ is sufficient and his work. What about you doubt your own experience, though, of the faith? That's actually, I think, the focus of this paragraph. So remember, the Roman Catholic Church said that you could not have assurance, that it's presumptuous to say that you have assurance. Martin Luther came along and he said, you absolutely can, centered on the Lord Jesus. Now, John Calvin agreed with Martin Luther, uh, but he said, you know, there are in the Bible certain confirming signs. That was his phrase. Confirming signs that help too. Look, for example, at a a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's about deacons who serve well. We're we're thinking the elders are talking about the role that deacons could play in our church. We have people who are actually deaking, but they're not deacons, but we're talking about that. Look what the text says about deacons, 1 Timothy 3.13. Those who have served well as deacons gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Serving well as a deacon gives you assurance in your faith in Christ Jesus. It's a confirming sign. Now let's look more closely at 1 John 3.19. It says, this is how we know Does your translation say this is how we will know? It might, because the verb know is actually present tense, uh, future tense. There may be a time when, when you have real doubts about this. This is how you will know. Now, this is how you will know. In the in the letter of John, most of the time when he says this is how we know, 
um, the this is referring to something that comes next. So, like, look up in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. How do we know? My translation, colon, here it is. This is how we know. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So this is how we know, and then he tells us. I actually have a suspicion that in verse 19, as an exception, he is talking about what he has just written as the this is how we know. So, uh, verse 18, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth, because that's how we know that we belong to the truth. You see that? I think that this this is how we know it's pointing back. Here's one of the confirming signs. The confirming sign is uh, our love for one another. Now, think with me here about the doubts of John's readers. We, we didn't talk about this as a category of doubt, but remember what's happening here to these readers. So the original readers of this letter, they were part of a church, and some people had left the church. They left the church, and they're starting to say that the essence of Christianity is having mystical experiences, that the essence of Christianity is, is receiving special knowledge and having mystical experiences. It's making these people doubt. Am I really a Christian? I haven't had mystical experiences. Am I really a Christian? And John comes along and he says, uh, uh, don't believe those false teachers. In fact, this is how you know you're really a Christian. You affirm the truth of, of, of who Jesus is and what he does. You submit yourself to him as Lord in obedience. And you love one another. That's a sign. It's a confirming sign. This is how you know that you belong to the truth. The gospel will change your life. This is how we know we belong to the truth. There's confirming signs. Love for one another is one of them. Now let me tell you another D.A. Carson story. I learned a lot about assurance this week from D.A. Carson. So use your imagination, all right? Your friend who lives down the hall in your dorm knocks on your door. You know her because you live in the same dorm, and you know her because she's part of the same Bible study that you're in. And she says to you, can I talk to you? Sure, come on in, we can talk. She says, I'm really struggling with my faith. She has so many doubts about it. So you say to her, well, what's going on? And, and you ask her, she tells you her, her story of how she first heard the gospel and became a follower of Jesus. And she tells you about how she got baptized and testified to her faith. And she talked about times that she's grown. And, and so you talk to her about what her life like, looks like now as a follower of Jesus. And then you find out she's sleeping with her boyfriend. I don't think at that moment in time the answer to her doubts is to say, Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's not what she needs at that moment in time. Uh, To start with, you might say to her that the conviction that she feels is actually part of the work of the Holy Spirit, but but that that a follower of Jesus who is engaging in, in, in that sin actively, purposefully, boldly, shouldn't have confidence. The Holy Spirit functions in that person's life to trouble them, to bring you joy, not conviction. Now look at something that says in verse 22. We're actually going to look at 22, 23, and 24. He says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we receive from Him anything we ask, because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. Do you know how this lack of confidence shows up in someone's life? It shows up in a lack of prayer life, a prayer life. 
There is a relationship in the Bible, we're going to look at another passage of the same thing, where there's this, this, this relationship between our confidence, our assurance, and our prayer life. People who don't have assurance, don't pray. Now, um, let's talk about that for just a minute here. It's interesting, he says, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence, we have boldness before God, and we pray. I understand how this works. Just imagine here that you have to ask your boss for a raise. You need a raise? So you want to go ask your boss for a raise? I bet that conversation will be shaped by the relationship that you have with your boss. Right? What sort of relationship do you have with your boss? It will determine the sort of conversation you have about a raise. In this text, our prayer life is the relationship of a father and his child. And if you have great assurance in that relationship, there's great freedom and great confidence in praying. What's puzzling a little bit about this verse is it says, Dear friends, uh, if our hearts do not condemn us and we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask. Whew, does that trouble you a little bit? Anything? Man, I got a list. Right? Except, well, there's conditions here. There's conditions all the way through the Bible. Look over at 1 John 5.14. 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything in accordance, according to his will, he hears us. Oh, there's a condition. Now, again, I'll just point this out. Think about this. I want to think about this a little bit more. The relationship in 1 John between assurance and prayer. In 1 John 3.19, he talks about assurance and then he talks immediately about prayer. In 1 John 5.13, he talks about assurance and then he talks immediately about prayer. People who have questions about their relationship with God, don't pray. John brings this up. Now the condition in verse 22, back in chapter 3, verse 21 starts, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask. Here's the condition. Because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. In case you uh, uh, wonder about this, um, God's commands, doing God's commands and, what, and, and uh, doing what pleases Him, do those things first and then pray, and, and God will answer. Keep his commands and do what pleases him, and then pray for whatever you want, and God will give it to you. John Piper says actually that these things form how we pray. If you are committed to keeping God's commands and doing what pleases him, it will change how you pray. Actually, you'll start praying that God would enable you to keep his commands and do what pleases him. In case you have any confusion about what those commands are, verse 23, and this is his command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. It's what He commands. Some people think that that's the ethics of the New Testament right there. Believe in Jesus and love one another. It's very simple. And growth in that sort of love is a confirming sign. Now we're going to finish, but before I do that, I have to say two things. Two different things at once. I want to keep both these things in tension. Actually, I have three things that I need to say. Here's the first one. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, verse 23 commands you to believe in him. Does that surprise you? God commands you to believe in him. This is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's not just a, a, a sort of an elusive belief in this imaginary, this is a very creedal, believe in his son, Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about who he is and what he's done. His son, Jesus Christ. 
Turn to him and trust in him. It's a command. You've heard me say you're accountable to him for this. Now, there's more than a Bible in the Bible than a command. It's also a plea. It's an invitation. God sent his son to, to re- rescue us because he loves us. So won't you be reconciled to him? Now, at the same time, I need to talk to some of you who have doubts about your own faith and their doubts like that college student doubts. There are doubts because there's something in your life and you won't quit. You won't do what's necessary to fight it. You won't repent. You won't seek help. And the confirming sign of genuine faith is shrinking because of how you're living. It's becoming less and less apparent. You shouldn't have assurance. You should be hounded by doubts. I have good news for you. There are people in this congregation who are willing to help you. They, they can listen to you confess your sins. They'll weep with you about them. They'll pray for you. They'll, they'll help you. You are surrounded by friends who want you to have assurance. And that thing that you're holding in your life, that you're keeping back, that no one knows about, that's bothering you and that's troubling you, they want to bear that burden with you. You're surrounded by people like that in our church. That's good news. Now there's a third group of people that I want to talk to, and this is a category of people who are also plagued by doubts, but they mistakenly put themselves in the second category and they don't really belong there. The second category, if you're in that second category, you need to be afflicted by this passage. But some of you this morning, you don't need affliction, you need comfort. You need a fellow follower of Jesus to come before you and say to you, I see you growing as a follower of Jesus. I see in your life these confirming signs of a changed life. I see evidence in your life of Christ's work. You need to talk to those people and you need to listen to what they say. Maybe you'd be helped as I finish by hearing about John Newton. You know John Newton? Everybody knows who John Newton is. John Newton wrote the the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, John Newton was a slave trader, so he used to... Uh, He was the captain of a ship that used to carry slaves across the Atlantic Ocean. 20,000, he estimated, in his life. And he said towards the end of his life, he could still hear them screaming when he would close his eyes. Well, uh, he heard the gospel. He became a follower of Jesus. He, He stayed on the ship for four more years, and then eventually he quit. He left that life. Uh, He got some theological training and became a preacher. And by all accounts, he was a terrible preacher. Uh, John Newton believed that you shouldn't prepare before you step into the pulpit, that you should stand up and start talking, and apparently it was awful. But he did write some amazing letters. You can read his letters. They're collected in books. And he wrote hymns, hundreds of hymns, a lot of hymns. Amazing Grace is just one of them. Towards the end of his life, he sat down and he evaluated his own life. And, and I, I want, here's a simplified version of what he wrote. He said, I am not what I ought to be. Isn't that true of your life? What you think about all the time. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. I am not what I want to be. But still, I am not once what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'll read that again. It's worth reading again. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. 
He says that because his hope is in Jesus. In another world, Jesus is going to change me. I'm not, I'm not what, I, what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Some of you, dear brothers and sisters, you have tender consciences and you need to hear John Newton rejoice over this. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I know, but I'm not what I used to be either. There are confirming signs in my life. For those things, brothers and sisters, give thanks and set your heart at rest. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this paragraph because we know that there are people who are part of our church who are just hounded. They're, they're the, the target audience for John. I write these things to you who believe so that you may know because they have doubts. Lord, I, I, I'm thankful to you that our confidence is supremely, can be supremely in the Lord Jesus and in his great work on the cross. No merit of our own, uh, your anger to suppress. Our only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. Lord, we're thankful to you for that assurance and that promise. Lord, there are some in our church, I have no doubt, who have assurance and they shouldn't. They should be hounded. Thank you for the work of the Spirit in hounding us. We who carry around unrepentant, unspoken of, hidden, secretly enjoyed sins. Grant, grant us freedom from them with one another in the context of this church. Oh, help us, Lord. Help us to wander, uh, to, to leave our doubts behind and find the joy that you call us to in the Lord Jesus, our great, great Savior. We pray, Father, in anticipation of that great day, that you might come soon, Lord Jesus, and call us to be with you, that we might be with you forever. All doubts will vanish. It's a good day. Come soon, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.